Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Sam Bain, a writer who's been involved with some of the sharpest, funniest comedy of the 21st century. Smack the Pony, Peep Show, The Thick of It, That Michelin Web Look, Ill Behavior, and Christopher Morris's brilliant fundamentalist satire, Four Lines. His latest feature, The Stand-In, stars Drew Barrymore as an actor whose attempts to recover from a very public meltdown are further complicated when her look-alike stand-in steals her career. It's directed by Jamie Babbitt, and it's just arrived on digital and on-demand from Paramount Home Entertainment. Sam picked Joe vs. the Volcano, John Patrick Shanley's fanciful 1990 debut that paired Tom Hanks with Meg Ryan for the first time, well, multiple times really, since Ryan plays three different characters within the story. Hanks just played Joe, a working stiff diagnosed with a terminal illness who's offered the chance to make his life mean something by traveling to a Pacific island and throwing himself into a volcano. Ryan plays the women Joe meets along the way, helping him with his baggage, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, and slowly waking him up to a life he'd never even noticed. 30 years ago, Joe vs. the Volcano was dismissed as a self-indulgent misfire, but now it looks kind of different. This is someone else's movie. Well, it's a film that's always been, you know, close to my heart. And um, I think partly because it's not that well-loved. It's like, you know, the runt of the litter you want to sort of, like, nurture and take care of because... I'm not sure if it was actually a flop when it came out, but it certainly wasn't seen as a hit. And those kind of films can often be written off and people move on and, you know, whatever. But it's one of those films which just hit me in a very, in a kind of delicate spot and has sort of stayed wedged there ever since. It, and also specifically, you know, um, Meg Ryan plays three different roles and you know I was I got my film The Standing coming out on the 11th and it was uh definitely an inspiration writing that movie because Drew Barrymore plays two roles in in my film and I think I was always I've always been attracted to films where you have actors playing multiple roles whether it's Joe or Dead Ringers or Dr. Strangelove or there are lots of examples but there's something about it which just kind of again, hits a nerve with me, and it's almost, I'm not exactly sure why, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and it's handled differently in Joe versus the Volcano than it is in most of these films where they never really interact with each other. And it is, I think it's unclear, or at least it felt unclear deliberately. A lot of Shanley's choices are very uh, arch and, and stylistic, but the fact that Ryan just keeps turning up, and according to the IMDb, she's also the voice of the airplane um, steward telling us that she's, <laughs> that they're coming into land. Uh, it feels like it is possible that these are three different women. They could all be sisters. There's a sort of awareness that there's more than one Meg Ryan in Tom Hanks's performance, but it might also just be happening. Um, and mm. this time through watching it, I realized it's a Charlie Kaufman move. It's it's the sort of thing where the maybe ten years later, I think people would have been ready to understand what Shanley's doing. There's a there's a magic realist whimsy that just landed like a rock uh, in 1990 when it was right. expected to be the next great romance from the man who gave us Moonstruck, which was how you know he got to make it. But it it feels like this wild shot that you take when you know you're not going to have another chance. And there's something about that that I really like. 
Yeah, you've summed it up much better than I could have. And, <laughs> and magic realist whimsy is is perfect because that is so hard and, and it's so risky. And I think, you know, Joe is not a perfect film by any means, but it achieves so much of um of what it sets out to do in a way that maybe people weren't ready for. And you're right, I think it was ahead of its time. You know, Charlie Kaplan's comparison is interesting. That never occurred to me, but um, I think it's relevant. And there's almost, you know, I think a lot of the films that have really affected me over the years have had a sort of connection to dreams or being dreamlike, whether it's David Lynch or Fellini or that kind of, obviously they're quite explicitly dream have dream sequences and so forth. But what I love about in particular that Meg Ryan um, triplicate role is, as you said, it's never explained like a dream. You sort of have to just go with it or ask yourself why. And that, that really, I really like that. Yeah. And other things are dreamlike in the rhythms, I suppose. I'm, I'm thinking about the way Dan Hedaya is, character is introduced with that little monologue that somehow never changes is really made up of a sentence fragment piled on top of another sentence fragment is all about implication. And yet 30 years later, I've never forgotten it. Um, yeah. I know you can get the job. I can do the job. It's what I think about every time I go for a pitch meeting as a writer <laughs> today. I can see the, I can see the value. Um, but it's also, the other thing that I think tricks people when they're going in, because it is that sequence with the, the sort of ugly green lighting and, and the, the misery of the fluorescent world of that Joe comes from before his whole brain cloud diagnosis, it sets up uh, an unreality that's boring, right? Like it's mm. instantly plugged into the world that this man is living in. And it's, Something that I think Hanks was very aware of, too, at that point in his career, where he was coming off a string of comedies. He was trying to do more dramatic stuff. He'd already made Punchline, but it didn't land properly. Um, he had this weird little window in the late 80s and early 90s where people didn't quite know what to do with him, even as he was becoming incredibly successful. And that, and the, the idea that he would jump on board this project is really something that fascinates me as well. I'd love to talk to him about the trajectory of that, that, that period of his career. Um, and I always get it wrong. I always remember it as coming after Sleepless in Seattle, but this was the first time that Hanks and Ryan worked together. And mm -hmm. it's remarkable. And she was, I mean, she was just doing incredible stuff at that time too. And, and I don't want to make this all about Tom Hanks and my appreciation for him. Um, she has to sell the life force that he's attracted to in three different permutations and always be reactive because the rules are designed that way. And there's a, there's a real difference to how she handles herself in this versus how she handles herself in the Nora Ephron stuff in the, in the work she's done subsequently, or, or, you know, you've got mail and, and sleepless in Seattle where this is that moment where you remember like, Oh yeah, Meg Ryan was this amazing incandescent screen presence for about three years and no one knew what to do with her either. Yeah, and I think this, you know, it's an obvious thing to say, but having three roles shows off her range, but it really does, you know. And I think my favourite of the three roles, I'm not including the airline announcement <laughs> woman, we can sort of leave her maybe to one side, is is the middle one, Angelica, who is this sort of very, almost like a sketch character in a way, almost like an SNL character, but carried off, really brilliantly and very funny and heartbreaking and she's kind of tragic and extreme 
And I'd never been to LA when I saw this film. It felt like like she captured an LA woman to me in London watching it. And, you know, there is something very, um, very compelling about her. But I wanted, before we move on, I wanted to go back to what you said about the opening. And I think that, um, again, one of the sort of braver choices and possibly Kaufman-esque choices that Shanley made is, is starting the film with an explicitly depressive suicidal protagonist yeah. i mean not every rom-com does that you know uh, although you know some films you wouldn't expect have that like lethal weapon for example mel gibson is suicidal in that film it's not something you would remember when you're watching lethal weapon 3 but that's how it, the film starts but this this is a really interesting example because it makes for me it can either turn you off or turn you on right i'm sure a lot of people were turned off by that i was turned on by it because it has that kind of existential quality about a character who is dealing with basically the problem of what am I doing with my life? What is it like to be a human? Which is not something that you see in every Hollywood uh, big budget comedy. Yeah. And there is a, a classic sort of leading man angle there, right? Somebody who is shaken up, you know, something like bringing a baby maybe where, I don't know why, but bringing a baby seems to be echoing through a lot of people's choices this year for me. Um, it's the, the Cary Grant thing where he's, you know, he's so good at what he does that he doesn't have any consideration for the rest of his life, that nothing else mm. matters. And this isn't that because Joe is miserable. Right? He's already ground down. It's not that, I mean, maybe he liked it at one point. Maybe he enjoyed this sometime in his life, but he's not doing that now. And he literally is woken up to the rest of his life by the the terminal diagnosis, which, you know, it's a, it's one of those things that we know going in like repeat viewings, you know, not to take it too seriously because you understand the world and the fabric of the, of the film has already it lodged itself in your brain. But the first time through, yeah, I saw that with an audience that did not know what to make of it. Nobody wants to hear Tom Hanks isn't going to make it. Yeah. And, you know, it's an amazing thing to say, really, but his superpower as a character is he is um, and nothing has nothing to live for and nothing to lose, which again is just very unusual um, in a romantic comedy, especially in a romantic comedy and one with so many kind of you know needle drops and upbeat moments. But there's a, a real darkness, a real kind of um, a vein of darkness which goes through the whole film which I think to carry that off as well as it does is pretty amazing. Yeah. And um, to jump back a little bit, uh, did you also see it when it first opened? Was, was that your first, when was your first encounter with it? Um, I think I saw it on VHS, you know, in uh, 1990 or 91. And it just, you know, it just jumped out as just like an unusual, weird film and obviously it's become a cult film and I'm sure there are lots of fans of the film now that there maybe weren't then and like any cult commodity it's partly driven by I've discovered this thing that no one's talking about or no one's noticed so I'm sure that really is a factor to people's appreciation of it yeah I think so and it does sort of court that too with its own it has its own cult built into the film there's the Waponi people which is somehow not nearly as insensitive now as i was worried it would be <laughs> it's like it's not great but the whole film has this this sort of 
bent reality to it that makes it okay that Abe Vigoda is the the chieftain of a of a tribe of Hawaiian natives. Yeah, it feels almost heightened in a way you could you're allowed. But look, I mean, I don't think the final act of the film is the strongest part of the film by any means. I think the ending. Look, endings are hard. Being thrown out by the volcano for no reason is, you know, something that happens. I'm not going to defend it particularly. Um, but there's so much good stuff leading up to that that I forgive any um, flaws in the ending, which, you know, let's face it, is never the easiest thing to bring off. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the journey is the destination and all that, especially in this film. But the the weirdness of it is somehow baked in. Like the the, the big the problems I have with the movie are not that it is hard to believe the, the, the ridiculousness of the ending. Yeah. But by the time yeah, we get yeah. there, we've been brought to it. The, the stages or the levels of the film, the way the drama heightens and the world gets sillier, uh, that works. And, and again, for a first-time director, that's, that's a pretty impressive accomplishment. Yeah, and, you know, I think that um, it, it has that singularity, doesn't it? It doesn't feel like anyone else could have made it. it. Doesn't feel like it was following any formula. And for a film of this size, I don't know what the budget was, but it doesn't feel cheap. It's pretty unusual. You get that, and it's kind of a shame for audiences that the film didn't hit hard because it would have been great to see more of what John Patrick Shanley could have done. I mean, obviously, he had a great career since, and is an amazing writer. But I would have liked to have seen more of that myself. Yeah, he he. Well, I guess retreated is the wrong word, but he certainly went on a more conventional path, you know, reworking his own stuff. I, I do mm. still uh, hold some fascination for the fact that he wrote Congo uh, back in the... Yeah, you know, we've all got to eat. Sure. I mean, and it is kind of a mildly idiosyncratic adaptation of a really flat book. So there is that, that vogue for Crichton where people were just throwing money at his books after Jurassic Park and and somehow, oh, sure, John Patrick Shanley can write one. Why not? It's, it's not difficult. And he probably did come up with the best beats in it. Uh, I haven't seen his new film, which is supposed to be coming out in two or three weeks if if everything holds a uh, wild mountain time. But uh, oh, I yeah. understand that people are upset about the accents. That's really all I know. Oh, yeah. The Irish. I haven't seen the trailer, but people, yeah, we'll see. But yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm a fan of his plays. I'm just a fan of his writing. And um this, I guess this is the one that really spoke to me. Yeah. And it does feel special among all of his others. I mean, just there is nothing else like it. He really didn't do it again. He didn't seem to even be interested in doing it again. And it's, I think it's also the one thing of his that he's written that couldn't be a stage play. I mean, you probably could do a musical version or something that would be uh, appropriately big and, and silly and splashy. But I think you need close-ups in this movie. I think you need to see... Those those tiny changes in Hanks because it is it's a great performance. It's it's very very subtle for the material, so it almost doesn't even seem to be there. But the what was the old line? The Tom Hanks you see at the beginning is not the Tom Hanks you see at the end. It's as much of a transformation yeah. as Castaway. It's just all psychological. It's all in the muscles of his face rather than in his body. Yeah, it's it's really a story of someone who finds a reason for living or discovers you know, their inner joy that was not there. And that story's been told a lot of different ways in many different films. But I really believe it in this film, in a, even though what happens is so over the top and kind of um, ludicrous on occasion, 
because of his performance, I believe that journey from, you know, physically sick, mentally depressed man to sort of a guy who has found himself partly through love, but not only through love. It's not just a simple story of love, you know, made me happy. It's about someone who is trying to find himself and kind of amazingly succeeds. And that, I guess that resonates, you know, particularly the age I was when I saw it, which would have been about 18, 19. There's something about that journey you're about to set out on. You know, the existential comedy mini genre is not huge, but the the films that managed to pull it off have always been very inspiring to me. I was trying to find resonances between Joe and the stand-in because um, it is there is an existential question in there. It's just more practical. Um, you know, someone has taken your life. What do you do? Or you want something more than you have? How do you get it? Mm. And those are just essential questions for anything, really. I mean, I think Joe versus the volcano kind of touches on the second one. But something else that I've learned is that a lot of people think this is a Cohen's uh, picture that. Somehow people attribute Joe versus the volcano to the Coen brothers. And I think Dan Hedaya is probably part of it just because not so soon after blood simple. But I think part of it is that the brain tries to classify it when you see it for the first time and you reach for the things that maybe resemble it because it doesn't really have any, like it's look is so odd and it's, it's, you can't really tell when it's taking place, even though it's clearly set in the present. It's a present that's old and worn and and pieces of it are from other things. And then that strange wordplay that opens it, again, Hedaya being just so good at doing that in the background of the shot, I think it tricks people into thinking that it's something else that they know and you're desperate to connect it to, to, something so you have so you have ground and it really isn't until the second or third viewing that you get that no this is one person who you don't know really i mean the there's a literacy to the moonstruck screenplay to the dialogue and the way that people argue that you can see here the echoes are there but moonstruck was directed by norman Jewison, who you know he's not known for visual flair it's a very basic presentation of that script and Shanley's just going for broke. He wants to play with the lighting. He wants to play with the set design. He has ideas that he doesn't know won't work, right? So he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop himself. And that's what the Coens do. So mm. there's that bleed as well. But it's just such a, yeah, I, I have to give it credit for being its own thing in the end. There really isn't anything else like it. Yeah, being unclassifiable is pretty fair assessment and i would say that's a compliment because how many things how many movies are genuinely unclassifiable or don't really have any direct comparisons and i i think even then but particularly now with the way cinema has evolved originality is something that i as a viewer i just put a huge premium on if someone can make a film that's original that stands out that isn't a sequel or a remake or an adaptation even just that any original screenplay like you get points for in my book but something that is also tonally its own thing and breaking new ground i just as a viewer i just give that film like a huge amount of leeway you know even if it's not perfect hey you you did this, you tried something really risky really ambitious you didn't play it safe you didn't adapt Jane Austen for the 12th time or whatever. 
you went for broke. And that's definitely the feeling I get watching this. Like he is going for broke and he's putting it out there and he's taking huge risks. And I hope he doesn't, I hope he didn't feel too bruised by the, the, the lack of warmth in the original reception, because to me, I, I just find that incredibly impressive and inspiring. Someone would just take those kind of risks because they're not easy risks to take. They're just not. Yeah. I mean, you wrote Four Lions, which is now, you know, looking back, it makes perfect sense. And it says so much about the way the world was going. But I, I remember the reception at the time. Um, critics got behind it and the press, uh, the larger press refused to acknowledge that such a thing could be uh, artful, I guess is a way to put it. The the hostility that um, that Chris Morris was, was subjected to just by announcing that project. Um, and it's, I mean, it's not in any way, I mean, it's not a romantic comedy. It's not quite, uh, the comparison sort of stops after that. But I am fascinated by the idea that people can make something that didn't exist before and give it more depth and and carve out a space for this sort of thing, this this type of art. Um, Joe versus the Volcano is, is one, Four Lions is one. Uh, I can think of a few other things. The thick of it, it probably, there's no precedent for that. Peep Show, I mean, these... These are projects that your your um, perspective is essential to, because if you don't know, I mean, if you how can I put this? Um, if you don't know where you're coming from, no one else can possibly understand it when they see it. Yeah, I mean, Four Lions. It, it does, there are comparisons with Joe, certainly in terms of taking risks, different kinds of risks, obviously, but. Sure. It wasn't well received when it, when it first came out. I mean, I was at Sundance in 2010 for the world premiere, and the reviews were mixed at best. We struggled to sell it originally, you know, to distribution in the US. It got a better reception in the UK, but even in the UK, we got slammed, and the Observer and other reviewers weren't kind to it. Ten years later, you know, it's still talked about. People still, you know, I still get compliments about it, and and. And it has that cult success vibe, which Joe has in a very different way. But it's partly that thing of people discovering thing, something new or the new thing taking a while to catch on. You know, I think that, you know, the, especially even more so now than 10 years ago, the whole Rotten Tomatoes culture of reviews is it's a nightmare for originality, right? Yeah, because... Yeah. You know, you're looking for that hot take, that instant reaction. Give me a tomato or a green, you know, a rotten tomato or a percentage. And it's like, I mean, obviously I don't need to explain why that might not be appropriate for art, but especially something that's original or, you know, risky. It's like, maybe take some time to chew it over. Maybe don't judge it as you leave the theatre. Maybe maybe check your preconceptions at the door. Maybe it's complicated. Maybe it's not as simple as a rating. Yeah. Um, I mean, the algorithm is death to creativity, just full stop, right? It, it's uh, as, as a working critic, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to express an opinion in more than a thumb up or thumb down or a fresh or rotten. And, and just the idea that people only want to know what the star rating is. I mean, that's been going on forever, but it's definitely worse now. And the, the idea that the content of the review doesn't matter, that it just needs to be summarized and boiled down to a, a 
a binary. Um, it crushes my soul, basically, every yeah. single time. 5.8 out of 10, it gets on IMDb, by the way, J vs. the Volcano. Which, really? Yeah. And, you know, to me, that, that sounds about right because it's original, right? So it's an original, distinctive, innovative, risky piece. So it's never going to get 10 out of 10. It's never going to be the film that people are all going to join, join hands and agree on. It's never going to be the Shawshank Redemption or whatever. And, and so I kind of take solace from that in a way as someone who's trying to be original, whether or not I succeed is, is not my uh, call to make, but I certainly do my best. And so seeing that the films I admire um, don't always get the reception that they, I would say, deserve is in a funny way inspiring. I can see that. And I think Four Lions certainly, and definitely Joe versus the Volcano, I think they both took a while to become, um, is popular success an appropriate term? Just beyond like the, the immediate critical community and, and the art house. I think it took a little while just because people needed to see it, to see the film in Joe's case, certainly, and realize it wasn't the thing they thought it was going to be or the thing that they thought it was from the poster, which it's a cookie cutter image that could have been applied to any of a dozen romantic comedies that year that just happened to be, you know, uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan standing under a palm tree and looking quietly contented. That's, it doesn't tell you anything about the movie (laughs) itself, right? It doesn't tell you about any of the first hundred minutes of that film and how they get there. Look, I think expectations are a huge issue when you're dealing with people's reactions to a film, both critics and, and viewers. And people naturally bring expectations. You know, you look at that poster, I'm looking at it right now, it's two people in an evening dress in a moonlit sea. It looks like Moonstruck 2 or, you know, some rom-com, you know, and it just isn't that. I mean, I don't, I'm not a marketing guy. I'm not going to diss marketing people. I, I wouldn't know how to market this film. And, you know, but people are going to bring expectations to it. And whenever they do that, there's a, a big risk of disappointment. And it's, for me as a creator, it's difficult to know how to address that. You cannot avoid some expectations if you try and sell a film. Um, it's a challenge, right? Because people tend to want what they expect and the, the people who want something different or surprising are frankly going to be your minority in the audience. Yeah. But they're the ones we like. They're the ones we like. And they're the ones I am. You know, I'm that guy. I'm that guy who wants to be surprised and wants to be, you know, something original. I watched Beyond the Black Rainbow last night. I mean, mean, it's, it's, um, I don't want to get waylaid by talking about uh, Panos Cosmatos, but I mean, I'm a fan of his stuff and it kind of defies categorization and originality, which I think that film has in spades more than outweighs any deficiencies it has for me. But then, you know, maybe I'm, a, I'm an unusual audience member. I don't know. I think, I, I think Panos Cosmatos would see you as the ideal audience member. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, and that has, that film also, it defies contextualization in that the only way you can describe it is to talk about the vibe that it leaves you with. Yeah. Um, I, somebody, I wish I could remember who it was. It might've been Adam Naiman uh, here in Toronto, who somebody in Toronto definitely told me I had to see it because it would, it felt like watching a VHS tape that you found under your bed after 10 years. <laughs> yes. And that's exactly right. That is what that is. Yeah. Um, 
I just admire anyone doing something so weird, frankly, and original. But I'm not, you know, I'm not maybe your average multiplex goer. I don't know if those people exist anymore because multiplexes certainly don't yeah, right now. There is that. Um, and to get back to the stand-in, though, I, it felt to me, I mean, co- please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I may have missed something, but it, it feels like your most outwardly conventional script in a while. It's it's something that uses the structure of the farce to plant its ideas and 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 move around in a world that we think we recognize or that we think we should recognize. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds good to me. There is a kind of, um, you know, the movie is trying to do a couple of different things at once. I've always felt it's trying to tell, as you say, of sort of, a fast story with misunderstandings and doppelgangers, but also maybe tell a story about a lost soul and identity and what it means to be, you know, a human being, what it means to be famous and how that can be such a prison, which I, I know is what Drew um, found appealing about the script. Um, and, you know, going back to, to the, the whole idea of an actress playing more than one role, like Meg Ryan or Drew Barrymore, I think there's something quite um, powerful about the idea of the way that we are all different people, right? We all have different sides to our personality and seeing the same person with two different characters almost gives gives expression to that basic existential thing of who am I? Am I this person? Am I that person? I'm, I'm this person with these people. I'm, the other person with those people. There's a truth to that, I think, which you can get to in a very direct, almost dreamlike way with um, someone playing more than one role. Yeah, and and Barrymore really seems to to rise to it because, I mean, I've met her. She's neither of these characters, which is great, but you can still sort of reference elements of her public persona throughout. Well, you know, I think she really jumped at the chance to play both roles and... You know, it was fascinating to watch her at work because she did that, I guess you call it a method thing of being in character. When she was playing one role, she was in character off camera as well as on camera. And so, you know, the days were very different depending on which character we were shooting. If we were shooting the nicer Paula or the spikier Candy we got a nicer or a spikier Drew. So that was fascinating and kind of extraordinary to watch. And yeah, I think that there's no doubt that she felt an identification with the prison of fame, which is where the basic problem of the film, which film star Candy is trying to solve. And, and by an extraordinary coincidence, she also had a very close, intense relationship with her own stand-in from E.T., and she showed Jamie, the director, photos when they first met to talk about the script of her and her stand-in wearing the same clothes. I think she even moved in and lived with her family and in her house when they were, she was young and, and, and a bit more of a lost soul than she is now. And so you, don't, you can't really um, predict those kind of synchronicity moments but that was definitely a big deal for her oh good i'm glad it i mean it feels like it works for her as a performance as a vehicle not just as a performance it, there's there's a lot of of her attitude somehow in there as well which i think is 
yeah, what you want from something like this, where you're you're watching something that could just be a stunt, but turns out to have a little more depth and and, and meat to it. Usually I would end the podcast by asking people if there's a particular element or inspiration or something they've taken away from Joe versus the, from the film in, in question, but Joe versus the volcano and your work don't really seem to line up. So if there is something, by all means, throw it at me. I think that, you know, for me, Joe versus the volcano is all about creating joy out of pain. And to me, that's the great joy of comedy. You, you know, you can take a depressive borderline suicidal courage like Joe and create a fluffy rom-com out of it. And to me, that that's the great alchemy of writing comedy is you can write about the worst, darkest moments of someone's life and get a laugh out of it somehow without losing touch with that pain, which to me is what gets me going in the morning. Yeah. Pain is funny. <laughs> I mean, it, or at least it should be because that way it's easier to deal with. Exactly. My thanks to Sam Bain, whose new film, The Stand-In, is now available to watch on digital and on demand. Thanks also to Susan Engel and Justin Solar. They know what they did. You can find Sam on Twitter at SamBainTV, all one word, and you can find Joe vs. the Volcano on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment and Warner Archive. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.